Hey, this is Dan Freeland. Welcome to TPT's podcast. We have a special edition this week. You've probably by now read the article by Zach Lowe about the Elam ending, which is going to be a revolutionary way that TPT is going to conclude games at the Jamboree this year in June in Philadelphia. Well, we have a long interview today with Nick Elam, the inventor of the Elam ending. I found it to be personally fascinating. I love talking to this guy. I think you're going to really enjoy this uh, interview as well. Gives you a ton of background on who Nick is, where the idea came from, why it works, why it's the appropriate thing to do, and why it's the anti-gimmick, as Nick says. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Nick Elam, how are you? I'm doing great. Great to talk to you, Dan. Now, Nick, um, we've had a little intro, and the, obviously the idea of the Elam ending has come out now. And I really would love to get uh, your story out there to as many people as we can. So I, I'd love to really start at the beginning. Like, just basically, who are you, Nick? Where are you from, and, and what's your background? Sure. Well, I, I, this is exciting for me because I love talking about the idea. But uh, And it's also important, I think, to note that I am a, a diehard basketball fan. It'll sound at times that I'm being very critical of the game, but I'm actually a diehard, lifelong basketball fan. Uh, you know, Between you and me, if nothing changes in the game, I'm still going to have my season tickets to see my Dayton Flyers. I'm still going to watch TBT and then NBA. But uh, you know, since I was five years old, I've loved uh, all sports. I just think that we can make this great game even greater. And so along the way, um, you know, I'm primarily basketball and baseball fan, but, uh, even now I, I work on the Cincinnati Reds grounds crew. And before that I worked, uh, with the single a Dayton dragons. So I worked my way up through the minors as a groundskeeper, <laughs> former high school baseball coach and athletic director. Uh, like I said, diehard fan of, of the UD flyers and, also, you know, as far as I have, a, I have a math background, so I look at things mathematically a lot of ways and, and, and kind of a research background. I'm pursuing my Ph.D. at Miami University right now, and I'm also a member of Mensa. And, and I noticed uh, a couple of years ago, I've been in Mensa since 2006, but it was only a couple of years ago that I realized that they've got all these different special interest groups about just about any topic you could think of. But they don't have any real uh, sports related special interest groups and they've got some for like active sports like running and hiking and mountain climbing and all that but that's that's not me I, I like to sit in the recliner and, and watch other people play sports right. so that was the kind of sports group that I wanted to start and so I'm the founder and coordinator of a special interest group of Mensa members who are interested in sports and sports analytics but I've also written articles about this idea for uh, the cauldron I've written some blogs for rushthecourt.net uh, for a site called sportsdataresearch.com I've even written an article for Red Leg Nation, which is um, a Reds, Cincinnati Reds blog, uh, not related to this idea. But I presented the idea at the University of Cincinnati. I did a, a guest lecture for their Sports by the Numbers course. I've uh, exhibited a research paper at the SPIA, uh, the SPEIA Basketball Analytics Summit in Chapel Hill. I've spoken about it at a Mensa conference. Uh, so like many sports fans, uh, you know, I like to play armchair commissioner um, and you know, like to think about the effect of, of certain rule changes and how they could improve the game. And I think I've got the big one. I think this is going to work. It's not unlike kind of what drove the uh, initiation of TBT as well. There was a lot to unpack there, Nick, so I'd love to get into some detail on this. But you mentioned two schools in Ohio, uh, one that you root for and one that you are finishing a PhD at. Uh, sure. Dayton. Uh, which is the one mm -hmm. you root for, and then Miami of Ohio, where you're getting your PhD. You're from Ohio, right. I take it, right? I am from Ohio, yes. Where in where in Ohio are you from? 
I'm from a city called Middletown, which is named that because it's directly between Cincinnati and Dayton. And that's where I grew up and, and lived there pretty much through high school. And then once I went to the University of Dayton, ever since then, my life has been uh, centered in, in Dayton. But really, that's just a stone's throw away from where I've always been. So I've uh, you know lived my whole life in southwest Ohio, and that's, that's pretty uh, – they're pretty passionate about college hoops there. Now, you mentioned a second ago that you were former athletic director at a high school, former high school baseball coach, but you also work at a high school now, right? That's right. Uh, well, I work at a, a fourth grade through sixth grade school. I'm a school principal, a very proud school principal. And you're and, be- uh, and, and before that, before that, I was a high school teacher and I was a high school administrator as an assistant principal, but now I am a head principal. In, in talking to people that know you, Nick, it seems pretty clear that you've got a really great um, ability to get things done. Like you seem like a very organized guy. Is that how you describe yourself? I mean, are you, <laughs> are you because I mean, candidly, you're, I think in your thirties, right? That's right. And so yes. at, in your thirties, you're already a, a middle school principal. Uh, you're getting a PhD from Miami of Ohio uh, in education. You're doing all these different things. I mean, you have to be a fairly organized guy to, to get all that done by that, that age, right? It's interesting because you've got to be organized, but you know, when you work in schools, you've got also, you know, you've got a game plan going into each day, but you know that uh, by early in the day, that game plan is going to be scratched and you're going to be addressing certain issues that come up along the way. So you've got to be uh, very organized, but also very flexible. And then you mentioned it's it's something, it's something that I really enjoy very much. Yeah. And then, and then obviously from that, organization maybe it's it is it a different perspective that you take on sports i mean are you watching sports and imagining as you said before like what the improvements could be what the tweaks could be that would make them make them better i think it's like a lot of uh, sports fans do they they love their team and they love their sports but then they also like to think of different ways i mean people get into you know debates all the time about different playing rules and it's interesting because um, you know, people, it's like people complain about the weather, but they don't do anything about it. Um, I think I hear, wait, people, is there, wait, hold I, on. Does Mensa I, have some idea to fix the weather? No, 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 but people talk about the end of basketball games all the time of how it's, you know, the last minute or last few minutes are kind of rough to, or really rough to watch, but and some people throw out certain ideas of how you could fix that. You know, you could in, to try to fix the fouling. You could allow uh, the team that gets fouled to uh, take the ball out of bounds or to shoot one free throw and keep possession. But, but really all that would do is probably lead to more fouling uh, than we already see and because it still doesn't give the trailing team a better alternative. And uh, it would lead to even fewer comebacks than we see. And it's already um, pretty striking how rare some late comebacks from some pretty slim deficits are as it is. So the idea itself is out there. The Elam ending is out there now. And what I'd love to do is kind of get into the background, Nick, of how this specific thing came into your head. Like, where, where did it come from exactly? Sure. So as I mentioned, I've been a lifelong basketball fan. Um, so I've, you know, watched games all the time and, and even noticed and learned to tolerate the the fouling and just how much the 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 style of play kind of deteriorates in the last few minutes. I, you know, I, I've still watched and I was I was willing to still be a fan even in spite of it. But I remember when I was a senior at, at UD, um, hanging out with my roommates, we were all, we're all big sports fans. We were watching, it was Elite Eight Sunday in 2004, watching a couple games that were just like, you know, many others that we had seen before where the game just deteriorates at the end. 
And we started thinking about, you know, this is, this is really kind of weird if you think about it, because you've got, you've got the trailing team is just blatantly, openly violating the rules, uh, but they're doing it because that's the only recourse they have to try to win the game, even though it still doesn't give them a very good chance. And we would still be willing to live with that, except it's very boring and it's hardly ever effective. Those I see those as the, really the real issues. So we kind of talked about, you know, is there a way to do it? Is there a way to, to fix this problem? We never really got all that serious about it and um, kind of chalked it up to, well, just any sport that has a clock, you kind of see teams trying to manipulate the clock. You see it in football, you see it in soccer and hockey. I mean, you see that in other sports that have a clock. So maybe that's just the way it has to be in basketball. But I remember, I remember the day it was March 10th, 2007, watching uh, an ACC semifinal. It was NC state and Virginia tech and uh, Dick Vitale was going crazy because, uh, again, it was just brutal to watch. And he was talking about the fouling. And um, but during that game, it kind of dawned on me this idea where, you know, you look at all these these issues that happen at the end of the game, whether it is the fouling by the trailing team, whether it's stalling and playing four corners by the leading team, whether it's these rushed and sloppy, just hopeless possessions by the trailing team when they're on offense. If you look at, and then you can go, go way down the line with a lot of other things that are not quite as significant, but all of these things, every single one of them is attributable to the game clock's influence. And so on that day, I thought, you know what, if you maybe if you played most of each game with a clock, but then got rid of the game clock before, you know, the style of play started to started to uh, suffer and teams started to try to manipulate the clock, like use a a hybrid format like that, part timed and part untimed, there would maybe all these problems would would go away. So uh, that was the first that I really thought I had something. And the, the ideas evolved along the way. I've, I've favored different formats along the way. Uh, the first idea I, I liked was actually getting rid of the clock in the entire second half. I don't think that's, I don't favor that idea anymore. But um, the idea that, that I think I have now, um, where you're just getting rid of the clock for that final stretch of the game, I think addresses a lot of those issues. And I think it introduces some residual benefits, some secondary benefits that uh, are pretty exciting. And you think about the, the, the idea that every game is guaranteed to end on a made basket, uh, that's going to create just a stockpile of unforgettable moments, you know, championship moments or big game moments, uh, these moments that we're going to remember for a lifetime. Yeah, that's the part I think as a fan that excites me the most is that every one of these games is going to end either on a field goal uh, to win it or somebody potentially at the free throw line, you know, like Ramil Robinson was for Michigan back in the 80s, uh, draining a couple of free throws to win the game. I mean, it's really an incredible thing when you think about uh, what's going to happen at the end of these games. I was hoping, Nick, what you could do uh, is now that we've, we've talked about sort of your background and stuff is how does the idea exactly work? How do you see it implemented and, and what's going to happen when the Elam ending is, uh, is used in the Jamboree this year? Sure. So, um, and also to, to add to that last point, you know, when you think about TBT and if this format were to find its way into the main draw at some point, you know, at some point, somebody, when you get to that championship game, somebody is going to make a shot to win millions of dollars. And that's just, uh, that's just going to be an unforgettable moment. 
And for TBT play, so TBT uses, uh, they play a 36-minute game, uh, two 18-minute halves. And so the idea is that the, the first half will essentially look the same as it does now. You'll play a full 18-minute half. You know, that, that'll be very familiar. And then for the second half, you'll play at least 14 minutes with a game clock in the second half. Uh, it won't be a hard stop with a buzzer or anything like that. Play will continue briefly and naturally once you reach that 14-minute threshold until the next uh, dead ball or timeout. But then once that once you reach that point, then you get rid of the clock, and it's just one team against the other. And, and so you're playing to a certain score, a target score, and the way to determine that score is if you, if you take the, the team's if you look at the score at the end of that timed portion of the game, whatever the score is, you add seven to the leading team's score. And whatever number you get, that's going to be the target score for the game. And then you come back from that timeout. There's no clock. Just one team against the, the other, hopefully playing a natural style of play, hopefully just playing real basketball until one of the teams hits that mark. So, it's or exceed that mark. They don't have to land right on it. They can exceed it too. So, so we're looking at this 14 minutes. You're saying basically four minutes left on the clock, uh, in the second half. Clock turns off. Uh, the team that's ahead, you add seven to their score. And then that's the new goal score. And then whoever reaches that number first wins. Is that fair to say? That's right. So I, I learn and I like to teach through example. So just a quick example is if after, once you get to that 14 minute mark, uh, the score is say 70 to 65. Okay. Now we're going to get rid of the clock. 70 plus seven is 77. So we come back from the timeout. The score is 70 to 65. We're playing first team to get to 77 wins. Go at it. So in that situation, if you're 70, 77 is now your goal score and it's 70 to 65. Uh, the team that has 65 points would have to go on a 12 to six run to win that game. Is that right? That's right. Uh, which we see that a lot during the like during the bulk of a game, during the early stages of a game. You see teams go on 12-6 runs because they they get to play real basketball. And the idea is, hey, maybe we'll see a fair number of 12-6 to six runs at the end of a game when there's no clock. The problem with the current format is you don't see a lot of 12-6 to six runs because when you're on defense, you've got to hand away free points to your opponent, sending them to the line. That's hard for you to score because you've just got to throw up these rushed, rushed shots, these ugly shots. So it's hard to make a 12 to six run currently, but hopefully if we get rid of the clock, hopefully we'll see more of those 12 to six runs. And, and um, you know, so we'll see more comebacks, not too many, but I mean, not, not where it becomes a gimmick, but we'll see a healthy number of more comebacks and there'll be, completed by playing real basketball. That's the idea. Yeah, you mentioned the, the, that word gimmick a second ago, and I remember when we talked about this before, um, you actually think that what's happening at the end of games now is the gimmick, that Naismith, James Naismith, the guy that invented <laughs> basketball, would probably look at your ending and say, yeah, that's that's how the game is supposed to be played, right? Well, and that's that's true. And by the way, uh, James Naismith was spot on. I mean, when he invented the game, that was pretty ingenious in itself. And he was right on by making the game totally time-based at the time because then baskets were very hard to come by. Uh, scoring was very rare, kind of like it is in football, hockey, soccer, sports that really need a clock. That's 
you know, that's the way it was in the early decades of the sport. So they really needed a clock. But for about the last century or so, scoring is much more frequent, much more um, frequent in basketball. And so they could realistically get rid of their clock for some or all of each game. And uh, so, yeah, that's the idea is that I, I'm not trying to change the game. I'm trying to preserve that natural and familiar style of play that we love about basketball and, and, and see it through all the way to the conclusion of every game. Now, I think it's I think it's I think it's got such a, a throwback quality to it and kind of a stripped down quality to it because we've all played pickup basketball, playground basketball where you play to a certain point total. So it's not too foreign of an idea. I think it's got that quality where, yeah, it is kind of a, it's an ungimmick. It's an anti-gimmick. And I think it's going to appeal to diehard fans, lifelong fans and casual fans alike. Those that have heard you talk so far, Nick, would probably agree with this, but it's not like you're just throwing this idea out out of anywhere. You've done a lot of research to back this up, right? Can you talk about the research that you've done, how you've gone about it, uh, all those kind of things? Yeah. So, you know, part of this, you know, if I'm trying to fix a problem, I've got to try to figure out what is the extent of the problem as it is. And so uh, way back in 2007, when I first thought of this, and again, this was uh, late in conference tournament season, and I was running out of games, at least college games to look at. So in, a, in the course of a couple of days, I had to kind of put together this research effort of how I was going to slice and dice all the NCAA tournament games that season. And I collected a lot of data from the NCAA tournament. I've, I've refined that uh, research method over the years. And a few years ago, I really ramped it up to where, and this is my third season of doing this, where I will uh, take a very large sample of games and, uh, you know, I can't rely totally on, um, play-by-play summaries and box scores that some of those summaries like an nba.com and basketball reference they will distinguish a personal take foul from a personal foul a personal take foul would be like a team committing the foul on purpose uh to stop the clock but a lot of those times you know i'm, I'm looking at the game i'm looking at the the play-by-play summary and it, it just doesn't match up they uh, to me it's clear they're trying to they're you know they're lunging at the player they're trying to stop the clock but yet they don't label it as a personal take foul in the summary so i feel that it's necessary to watch the end of all these games so that takes time and uh, it takes about six to eight hours a week during basketball season which isn't too crazy but it's definitely enough that i would have stopped doing it a long time ago if i didn't believe in this idea but uh, over the years over the last three years I've looked at data from over 2,000 games, and um, I'm pretty sure there is a problem, and I'm more sure than ever that there's a problem, and I think uh, that this hybrid format is the way to fix it. What does the data tell you when you evaluate those 2,000-plus games over the last three years? What does the data tell you about what's happening at the end of the games right now in terms of comebacks and fouling and, and things of that sort? Right. So that's that's kind of the, the main thing I like to look at is how prevalent is the deliberate fouling, how um, and I don't say intentional fouling because that means something different, but we'll say deliberate fouling. How prevalent is that and how effective is that? So I do have some numbers. You ready for these numbers, Dan? Absolutely. I'm not a numbers should, guy, but I would love to <laughs> just because I'm, I'm not as good as math, uh, Nick, as you probably are, I'm sure. But I'm, I'm very intrigued well, by the numbers. Well, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty straightforward and it's pretty striking when you look at this. So anyway, um, the data I've got, this is through 
March 12th of this year. And this again, this is three years worth of games. And for the NBA, I just look at any game that's on national TV, whether that's Turner Sports or um, ESPN, ABC, NBA TV, whatever, all those nationally televised games, I look at those. So I've got about um, my count through March 12th over the last three years, 877 NBA games. Uh, NCAA, I look at all the games that are on ESPNU. Uh, That is... Uh, they have a lot of they have a lot of games and they have a good mixture of conferences and teams, uh, and it's easier to set up the DVR that way. So through regular season and conference tournament season, it's all the games on ESPNU, and then once they get to the tournament, then I look at tournament games. But that's over a thousand NCAA, NCAA games. But to look at okay, first of all, let's look at how prevalent this the deliberate fouling is. And the NBA during that time for those games, we're looking at over forty five percent of games include. Uh, that deliberate fouling by the trailing team late in the game for the NCAA uh, men's, we're looking at about 58% of the games include that fouling late in games. And keep in mind, a lot of these games that don't include that fouling, it's because the trailing team is, is far enough behind that they don't even bother with it. They've, they've given up, they've conceded the game, which is also something that I don't think you would see under the hybrid format that I'm proposing. But here's the part that's really eye-popping. So if you're a team that, if you're looking at the fouling and the effectiveness of the fouling, you can categorize it um, a lot of different ways, but I'm, doing, I'm going to do it three ways. One way is if you've got one team that resorts to fouling and that team loses, the other is if one team resorts to fouling and they end up winning the game, whether it's during that period or later on. And then there's kind of a gray area in between where there's some weird games where at some point both teams resort to fouling. Um, maybe one team fouls in the fourth quarter and the other team fouls in overtime. And if that's the case, it's kind of hard to say, well, was fouling successful? Was it unsuccessful? Because only one team can win. But anyway, let's look at that first uh, category. So again, the and first category is what is if, if if you've only got one team re- that resorts to fouling and this team loses the game. Okay. We're talking the team, that, the team that does the um, purposeful fouling mm-hmm. and then loses the game. This is the number that Correct. we're about to hear. Okay, right, right. Ninety-eight point two percent of the time, that's three hundred and ninety out of these three hundred and ninety-seven games where there is fouling. That's how many times there's one team that fouls. And that team loses. That's the NBA number. Ninety-eight point two percent of the time, they end up losing the game. Just Nine, doesn't work. Ninety-eight point two percent of the time, when the NBA team that resorts to fouling at the end of the game uh, is down, they lose. Is that right? That, that's right. Okay. That's right. Now, there's been seven games that are kind of weird. Like I said, where you know at some point both teams resort to fouling. So seven games. Um, you get 1.8% of those that where it's hard to say, well, was it successful? Was it unsuccessful? Kind of hard to say because both teams did it. But then that leaves you with the last category where there was only one team that resorted to fouling and they eventually, they, they went on to win that game either in that period or a later period, zero games, zero games out of these 397 games where there was um, fouling. It, it has not happened on a nationally televised NBA game over the last three years. <laughs> that's absolutely astounding so the last yeah. <laughs> by the way you, i think the story is that the reason you're doing nationally televised games is that that's what comes in on your cable service and that's how many <laughs> you can record right 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 all right, right. so you what you looked at in three now, years and also for the uh for ncaa it's pretty comparable 96.4 percent of the time 
uh, the, if there's only one team that fouls, they're going to go on to lose. Um, the, the gray area where both teams end up fouling, that's about 2.4%. And then the times where there's one team, there's only one team that fouls and they win the game, uh, about 1.1% of the time in college basketball. All right. So this is, this is astounding. Let's start with the NBA number. The situation that you talked about where zero times it has happened is, uh, when the team that fouls intentionally, not intentionally, purposefully at the end of a game has won the game on a nationally televised game over the mm-hmm. last three years. Right. In so that's the, now that's, that's through March 12th. I haven't, uh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're airing this in April, then, but, but that's, the, yeah. I think the statistic bears itself out. Even if yeah. one time it happened out of 300 plus games, I mean, that's a, a real rarity that that ever actually works, that that strategy works. Right. And then in the NCAA, in the games that you've charted, which again is what's the total number of games that you've charted there? NCAA. So, and again, I don't mean to confuse the issue. So, the, if you're just looking at total games, then it's over, it's it, in college, it's 1,066. Um, but the games that include fouling, that's 617. Okay. All right. So, it's still a substantial sample size. 617 right, right. games is many, many college seasons uh, for one particular team. Right. So what you have is 617 games, and of those games in which the intentional fouling, purposeful fouling takes place at the end of a game, in only 1.1% of those games, that strategy works. Yes, you could, if you're being really generous, you could say, um, you could bump it up to as much as 3.5%, but again, that includes a handful of games where both teams end up fouling at some point. So somebody's going to win. But if you're looking at games where, ju- where only one team fouls and that team wins the game, that's 1.1% of the time. So that's the big problem is not only is this um, strategy just, it looks silly. It's boring. It's not real basketball. It also, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's yet, it's still the best option that the trailing team has. So let's go back to the example that you gave a second ago where the team is up 70 to 65 uh, when the clock turns off uh, in a TBT Jamboree game. Sure. That 12 to 6 run happens, I would imagine, very, very often in the course of a standard basketball game before you get to this silly period at the end right now. That, that's And that's the idea. As you think about oh, 12 to 6 run, that's uh, that's not too crazy. But if you think about um, you know trying to overcome a five-point lead – in, under the current format really late in the game now it's like man that's a pretty steep hill to climb i, I even see so many games where teams will they'll give up they'll throw in the white towel or the the white flag when they're down by five points in a game you would never ever ever see that if uh, we were playing under a hybrid format where they're just playing to a certain score you would never see a team give up a game uh where they're losing by f- five points now, Nick, have you thought about the scenario in which a team might try to foul uh, for the purpose of um, increasing the likelihood that the team would score two points on a basket? I'm not sure. I understand. So in other words, um, a team has uh, an opportunity to foul a 40% free throw shooter. Mm-hmm. And they do so under the belief that he's going to miss one or two of those shots and then they'll get the rebound back. Why would that not make sense for a team to do? So I have a few uh, thoughts about that. One is I think teams might not be as inclined to do that because, uh, you know, under the current format, there's two benefits in doing that. There, one is that you might limit their ability to score. 
and but the other is that you stop the clock. Here, the points are the clock. So, and and you're, by fouling a player, you're giving up all control of of your fate at that point. So, I'm not sure how many teams are willing to do that to really hand over their their full fate to another player, even if he is a poor free throw shooter. Another thought I have about that is, and this might be the best part, I think that the hack a player strategy that we see, you know, throughout the course of NBA games. I think you know they they keep trying to figure out well how do we legislate that out of the game. I think this format that this the presence of this format you could realistically indirectly see that fade out uh, just kind of naturally because here's why you know that that kind of purposeful fouling it's become such an ingrained part of the sport under the current format that. You know, officials have to kind of look the other way and and pretend that it was pretend that it's just a regular personal foul, and they can't treat it like, hey, that was an intentional foul, and and give the free throws and possessions. They they can't treat it that way because then we'd see even fewer comebacks. But if this concept were in place, and that that type of deliberate, purposeful fouling uh, was became less prevalent, then I think you could even start to enforce the rules more by the book throughout the whole course of the game. And when you see, you know, in the first quarter, somebody lunging and trying to foul DeAndre Jordan, and it's clear to everybody that they're trying to commit this foul on purpose, you could say, well, now we're going to start calling this more as, hey, it's clearly uh, they're going out of their way to foul and we're going to give them a free throw in possession. But to answer your question about, you know, whether that's an effective strategy, trying to trying to foul a player late in the game once you're in that untimed portion of the game, that's where, um, you know, again, if, if it's an off-the-ball foul, I would say, hey, let's give them a free throw in possession. If it's an on-the-ball foul, then, you know, if you're the offensive team and you're you've got your – a poor free throw shooter out there and you're willing to give them the ball, then you're opening yourself up that the other team's going to commit that foul uh, to try to send them to the line. It seems also, though, that any given possession in a basketball game has less than a 50 uh, – uh, maybe the best offensive teams are slightly over 50% likely to score two points on that possession. Right? Yeah, so, so – why? So why, why would you ever follow a guy uh, in which case uh, the chances of him scoring are actually lower than, than they would be from the line anyway? Say that one more time. So in other words, if you come down the court on any given possession, say it's an off-the-ball foul or if it's even a possession uh, where they're shooting the ball, the likelihood that that shot's going to go in at the very high end, say if it's from outside of 10 feet, 6 feet, whatever your your line would be, is pretty high. I mean, it's pretty low, rather. Um, it's only high when it's within the basket, basically. Right. If you're going for a dunk, you've got about a 90% chance of making it probably higher. Uh, if you're shooting from three, the best three-point shooters are going to hit maybe 40% of those shots, 40 to 45% of those shots. So why would you ever foul a guy under those circumstances and give him even a better chance of, of actually scoring the points? And I agree. And I think, you know, teams so much now when they're trailing in a game, they feel like their fate is out of their hands and they have to do all these crazy things to manipulate the clock. This, I think, would really be refreshing because now they think even if they're trailing, hey – 
now we finally have the fate is in our hands. There's no electronic third party to interfere or to manipulate here. It's just us against you. And I think a lot of teams are going to say, you know what, we trust ourselves enough that we're just going to try to get a legitimate stop here um, and come away, you know, giving up zero points. And let's go back on offense. And, and once we are on offense, we get to play our preferred style. We don't have to throw up any kind of ugly shots. Exactly. Now, you came up with a, a version of this idea as far back as 2007. So you've clearly been uh, thinking about this for a long time. But you've also been reaching out about this for a long time, right? That's right. And I'll say that you know, I've, I've reached out in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. And I, I can say that um, you know I've, I've received many different responses or many responses. And everybody's been very gracious. They... They could have told me to, to buzz off, but they didn't. They, they had positive feedback, and they they gave me a response, which was more than they owed me. And I understand and I respect that uh, for a lot of them who are already in the basketball community, they have something to lose by embracing you know this kind of an idea. So I, I get that. Uh, and they they've even if they've had positive feedback, they've reminded me of the forces that I'm up against here. Just um, you know, there are forces of inertia where these kinds of changes don't happen very often and they certainly don't happen quickly. Um, but that's really what makes TBT support so amazing. And I re- really appreciate it because TBT has got a good thing going. This is a, a fast growing event and they've got a lot of positive momentum that they could easily just keep things going in the direction it's going. But um for them to be bold enough to uh, wrap their arms around this idea and give it a shot, that, that tells you how forward-thinking TBT is. Oh, I appreciate but to, that. <laughs> but, but, to na- but to name uh, you know, some of the, the, not individuals, but just different areas where they were. I mean, I've reached out to NBA executives and uh, analytics personnel, NCAA uh, coaches, conference commissioners, uh, pe- people in the WNBA, WNBA owners. Uh, various members of the sports analytics community, various media members have even reached out to agents because I, I really think once you have all these walk-off shots, um, it's going to be able. You're really going to be able to sell your players' brand because they're going to have these uh, great moments attached to them. Uh, so I thought that it might be appealing to agents. I've talked to uh, semi-pro leagues, international leagues, rec leagues. I mean, you name it, um, and. You know, it, it comes down to like what I said at the outset, which is, you know, even though uh, even though I see these issues in the game, I still love basketball and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep watching even if it doesn't change. So I think other people uh, feel the same way that, you know, yeah, we see the problem, but, you know, basketball is thriving and, and we're not going to mess with it. You've reached out to specific people and I think there was one that uh, really intrigued me, but even NBA owners you've reached out to, right? That's right. And was there one in particular that you talked to or emailed with? Uh, well, one who uh, one who replied and, and um, was Mark Cuban, which that, that didn't surprise me because he's very forward thinking and he's willing to take risks. He actually thought and, – and this was back – this was a few years ago when – I think it was back in 2012, I want to say. And at that time, I was kind of hedging my bets. I, I didn't think you – know, it didn't seem like there were any takers on, on the getting rid of the clock and regulation. But I was at least thinking, well, maybe – Maybe this might work if you just did it for overtime, maybe make overtime first to 10 or first to 12. Um, and so that was the idea that I brought to Mark Cuban at the time. And he actually replied. I think he said it, it was a great idea. He said that it probably they probably couldn't do it in the NBA, but they might be able to do it in the D-League. 
Um, but it was, again, that was more than he owed me. He didn't owe me a response. He could have told me to get lost, but, uh, but he didn't. He gave me a response and I appreciate that. And everybody has a reaction to the idea of turning the clock off. You know, it seems largely favorable. Almost everybody I've spoken to about it has been very much in favor of it, but there's definitely a reaction physically. Uh, people think about it. You can almost see it on their faces as, as they talk about it. Has that been your experience too? <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, I mean, mostly it's been kind of like polite head nodding. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's the best way I can put it. Just like, oh, yeah, that, that's interesting, um, that kind of thing. But so, so nobody's really, uh, you know, busted my chops too much to my face. But, um, you know, like I said, I, I would actually rather them do that and really come out and try to uh, attack it either from from either the soundness of my research or from uh, the soundness of the idea, whatever. I'd, I'd rather them just do that. I think I like that better than the polite head nodding. This game, uh, this rule, the Elam ending is going to come into effect with Jamboree this year, uh, which is going to be on June 17th and 18th in Philadelphia at Philadelphia University. And uh, hopefully you'll be in attendance. But I'm curious what you think it's going to feel like the first time you know, the game might be nine o'clock in the morning. I don't know. But uh, the first time we get into a dead ball with under four minutes to go during that jamboree. Uh, there's going to be some goosebumps. That's for sure. This has been a long time coming. I've definitely envisioned it um, in my mind you know, many, many times. I, I mean, every single time I watch a basketball game, I think about this idea and what it might look like. So it's going to be really cool to see it in action uh, for the first time. I, like I said, I I think this is the big one. I think it's going to change the game forever. And, and by change, I just mean uh, preserve the, the familiar and natural style of play uh, that we love about basketball. And I think it's going to work. Um, I think having it in action is going to expose it to uh, the increased uh, scrutiny, which it needs. That'll help fine tune the format, make it make the idea, the concept even better. And, um, so June 17th is going to be, it's going to be a proud day for me, but who knows, it might be a historic day for basketball. What do you think is a success coming out of Philly in the Jamboree for the rule? That, um, that we get to see real basketball in in, for that last part of the game, even if, cause my guess is that, um, you know, the initial reaction is going to be, yeah, you know, we still, it's still kind of unfamiliar, but so I'm not going to base it too much on initial reactions because these are, I mean, we're dealing with people who love this game and love this game for their whole lives and, and people can be resistant to change in that way. So I'm not worried too much about the initial, um, anecdotal reactions and subjective reactions. I'm going to be looking at it as, Hey, are, are these teams trying to circumvent the rules in any way? Or are they, or are they just trying to score when they're on offense and trying to get legitimate stops when, when they're on defense? That's, if, if that happens, then I'm going to be very happy. And if it, if it doesn't happen, then again, that's going to be an opportunity. Um, now we've got it out in the open. Now we're going to have uh, some more scrutiny and, and it's going to come up with more ideas of how to fine tune this idea even more. It's going to, it's, I think, I think it's pretty good now and it's going to get even better as we go forward. You've, you've said this is the big one, you know, the big idea. What's your dream for this idea? <laughs> well, the, uh, you know, some people dream about, uh, you know, being rock stars, movie stars, professional athletes, I guess. Um, you know, my thought is that this, 
this idea is just going to be such an instant hit. You know, can't miss. Everybody's going to love it. Uh, it's going to be in place in college basketball and, and NCAA and all the levels of or in, uh, NBA at, at some point. Um, Adam Silver's going to pull me in as his top advisor as uh, <laughs> you know, on playing rules. And then you know, Rod Manfred and Roger Goodell, they're going to want the same thing. I'm going to end up in uh, – Springfield and Cooperstown and Canton. I mean, I, I'm getting a little carried away, but uh, <laughs> so, sometimes my mind wanders. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Nick, I really appreciate your time. You've been more than generous talking to us for so long about the idea. I'm so excited about the Elam ending happening. I think it's, I agree with you. I think this is the big idea and I can't wait to see it implemented at the Jamboree in June. Uh, thanks again. Uh, opening day was fun. I take it. And obviously uh, that's like, kind of like Christmas for you on Monday. Uh, the, the first Monday in April, that I think that's the best sports day of the year. Uh, Major League Baseball opening day and the National Championship men's college basketball. Excellent. Nick, thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nick as much as I did. Remember that you can find TBT anywhere on the internet. TheTournament.com is the website. At the tournament is our Twitter handle. We're at Facebook.com backslash the tournament on, on Instagram. We're the dot tournament. You can even find us on Viber at the tournament. So remember to check us out all, all over the internet, everywhere that you are. And if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, remember to hit that subscribe button. Be sure to tell your friends and family all about the TBT podcast. We're looking forward to TBT 2017, and we really hope that you are too. 